us on a daily basis. Um, God, be with Ben this morning as he brings your word to us. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to learn more about you um, and to go out into this uh, world and serve you this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good morning again. I was grateful for the cold front until I just walked outside with wet shorts. A little chilly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 15. There's several kind of theological ideas, things that that Paul's bringing up in this passage, largely in 1 Corinthians. What Paul has been doing is he's been talking about church unity and the things that that unify us, things that divide us, things that that we should care about and that we should be divided over and things that we shouldn't care so much about and we should set aside as as secondary or, or tertiary issues. And so we've walked through a lot of this letter, and we still have a lot to go, and some of the more controversial passages where people have taken different interpretations are, are just on the cusp um, in, in 1 Corinthians, and so we'll, we'll get to some of those here in a little bit. But there's two theological ideas I want to bring up, because Paul's going to address them and talk to them, and they affect us, even though you won't know the names. So I'll, I'll teach you the cool names so you'll sound cool and sound smart. I'll tell you what they mean, and then what you'll see is when you read Scripture and we, we walk through this passage, that Paul is, is wrestling with these two ideas. So the, the first one is, is legalism, which you've probably heard of, which is this idea that there is the law and that we hold to the law above all else. Like we, we stringent with it, we're tight with it, we're very narrow-minded, dogmatic, going to every little, little thing. We're gonna, and a lot of times with legalism, the issue is not that you're following after the law like that. The issue with legalism is you'll make up laws to help you follow the laws better. That's what we see the scribes and the, the Pharisees doing, right? Don't work on the Sabbath. And so then they decide, well, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll only work if you're, uh, you can't work, so you can't uh, leave your house. But if you tie a rope to your door and then you can walk as long as you're holding on the rope, then that's not working. You're not leaving. It's just all of these laws that we kind of compile on us. But the gospel shows us there's grace and that there's mercy and that there's freedom within Christ. It's a freedom to obey Christ, but he's died for our sins. We don't work to earn our way to heaven we don't work to to save ourselves our salvation doesn't work that way and so legalism leans into that but the other idea is called antinomianism which is the exact opposite where we say things like well because there's grace and because there's mercy i don't have to obey I can do whatever I want in my life. I can live however I want to live. And because God is gracious and because God is loving and because God is merciful, not only does he not going to punish me for those things, he encourages it and he will let me live that way. And that's not what Paul is saying to do with your Christian liberty either. That there's a different path and a different way. And so let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 15 through the end 27 and and we'll see what paul's getting for and then we'll we'll walk through it for my part i have used none of these rights nor have i written these things that they may apply in my case for it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast for if i preach the gospel i have no reason to boast because i am compelled to preach and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel for if I do this willingly I have a reward but if unwillingly I am entrusted with a commission what then is my reward to preach the gospel and offer it free of charge not to make full use of my rights in the gospel although I am free 
from all and not a slave to anyone. I have made myself a slave to people in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. To win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. And I have become all things to all people, so that I may, by every possible means, save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I'm grateful that we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians on this Sunday. God, I'm grateful that you've given us uh, four people to baptize this morning, to join into membership with us, to, to recognize and to say to the world that now they're Christians, they're believers in you, Jesus. I pray, God, that this morning, that as we walk through this passage, we would continue to be grown in you, that we would be discipled, Father that your gospel would pierce into our hearts. That it would encourage us where we need encouragement. That it would convict us where we need conviction. And that we would grow in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's start back in verse 15. For my part, I have not, uh, I've used none of these rights, nor have I written these things that they may be applied to my case. For it would be better for me to die than anyone deprive me of my boast. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because I am compelled to preach. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if unwillingly, I am entrusted with a commission. So what then is my reward? to preach the gospel and offer it free of charge to make full use of my rights in the gospel. If you remember the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it was Paul talking about how if you proclaim the gospel, if you have your pastors, that there's a right for them to be paid. But Paul says he's rejecting this right. He's not taking funds from the church because he doesn't want to cause the church to stumble. Remember at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that there were all of those different Sunday school teachers that they were arguing about. And Paul recognizes this. He understands the tension that's taking place in this church. And so Paul says, I'm going to continue working on as a tent maker, even though I have this right to be paid by you. And Paul's not doing this passive aggressively trying to seek a raise from the church. Right, he says that. Now, I'm not written these things that they can be applied to me. He's saying, I'm not taking any funds from you. That's not the goal. Because Paul says he thinks that that would take away his boast. Typically in the scripture, when we talk about boasting, when the Bible brings up boasting, it is a sin. But the way Paul is using it here is it's not a sin. 
Paul's not boasting in his own ability as an apostle. Paul's not boasting in his own ability to proclaim a message. Paul's not boasting in his own pride or in his own arrogance. What Paul's boasting about is what Paul's been boasting about this entire letter, that he preaches Christ and him crucified. He's boasting about God. He's boasting about how he is weak, and God has used his weakness to proclaim the gospel to people so that they might understand and believe in Jesus Christ. There's not pride within what Paul is doing. So he says, for I preach the gospel. That that phrase, that, that word, the stress there is on the message of what is being said, not on how Paul is saying it. He stresses the gospel. He's making sure that they understand that's the boast. The good news of Jesus Christ is what he is boasting about. It's what he is glorying in. It's what he is tethering himself to and tying himself to, not in his ability to proclaim it, but in the gospel message itself. We know the story of Paul. Paul says, I'm compelled to preach. That He says later, I've been entrusted with the commission. We know the story of Paul. He was a pagan who was hunting down Christians to imprison them. And God radically saved Paul's life on the road to Damascus and says, you're going to go and you're going to preach to the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul goes to the Jews and he proclaims the message in the synagogues and the Jews reject him. And so Paul and Barnabas look at him and say, now we're going to go to the Gentiles. We're going to preach to the Gentiles. And so Paul has this commission from God where he is proclaiming the gospel and he would never have done this had there not been the Damascus Road experience for Paul. So he says, woe to me if I don't. Like, I mean, he's like, I'm going to preach the gospel. End of discussion. If you get in a room with Paul, it's going to come up. He has this unique call from God. He says if he's, he's willing, he has an aurora, but if he's not willing, which is, is interesting for Paul to say, if there's times he doesn't care to do it, there's times he's tired or frustrated, whatever, he has this commission that he leans into from God. So what is Paul's reward for preaching the gospel? What is Paul's reward for giving up this, this right, for living in this freedom that he says he has? His reward in verse 18, it says, to preach the gospel. <laughs> Free of charge. To not make use of his rights, to not put aside these, these blocks in that might cause people to stumble or not hear the message that he is proclaiming. This is important for us, church, because so often we will all agree, right? You could tell any Christian we're going to preach the gospel and there's not any Christians who are going to go, no, we shouldn't do that. We can say that and all believers are going to agree with us, but when we define the gospel and actually do it, that's when we end up with disagreements because Far, often, far more often than we want to admit, what we like about the gospel is not the gospel message, but the benefits that come from the gospel. And so we'll preach those, we'll proclaim those, but we'll not actually get to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The gospel message is there is a God who is a creator God and that he is sovereign over all things, that he is omniscient, that he's omnipotent, that he's omnipresent, that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everywhere. There's nowhere that God is not, that he has always been, that he was never created, and that he is the creator of all things. And as the creator of all things, he has a right to rule and reign over all things. And that God created all things. And a part of God's creation was he made human beings, you and I. And he made us unique. He made us in his image. No other creation is made in God's image. Only human beings. Yet human beings are the only creation that rebels against the ruler God. 
that we question God's word in Genesis chapter 3 and then the rest of mankind is about us questioning God's word in various ways. That we've rebelled against the king who rules and reigns. That we've rebelled against a king who sees us at all points of time. That we've rebelled against a king who is sovereign and mighty and all-powerful and all-knowing that we have rebelled against that kind of God-king. And that we are doomed. We're not good enough to earn our way back to the king. We can't do enough good things to do so. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't act right or be right or do right or not do bad enough to earn our way back to God. We're doomed. But the whole Bible is God revealing himself to us as a God who loves as a God who has grace as a God who has mercy it's not God sweeping away all of the judgment that we deserve it's God saying I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with all of the things that need to be dealt with and so ever since Genesis 3 when God sits the puts the proto-evangelium the first gospel where he says the snake is going to be crushed he's going to crush the head of the snake and he's by his heels crushed we've been tracing this line of the snake crusher all throughout the Old Testament that we see these pictures of, of maybe somebody who's going to be it. maybe it's Abraham God covenants with Abraham that you're going to be God's people but Abraham's not the snake crusher we see it with uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all of these men who maybe they're the snake crusher but they're not we see it with with Moses who God covenants with Moses and gives the law the law that's important to us Deuteronomy uh, Leviticus numbers all of those books telling us how to follow after God how to please God and what the law shows us is that we can't we can't keep it all we see King David. Maybe King David's the one who's going to be this great snake crusher for us. But King David is a great and mighty king, but he's not the Savior. And eventually, in a small little town of Bethlehem, two rural teenagers give birth to God. God in the flesh. That God knows we can't go to him, so he comes to us. He doesn't come as the son of a mighty Roman king. He doesn't come as the son of a mighty Jewish priest. He comes in the most lowly of ways. And he lives a life that you and I should have lived. He never sinned. He never dishonored his parents. He never stubbed his toe and said a curse word. He never sinned in his entire life. Yet he willingly goes to the cross. The wages of sin is death, is what Paul tells us in Romans, but Jesus did not sin, so he did not deserve death. Yet he willingly goes to the cross. Not because he deserved it, but because he knows that you and I deserve that judgment, that you and I deserve that death, that you and I are the true rebels against God, that we are the ones who are sinners in our core. And so Christ climbs on the cross and is murdered. Not because he deserved it, not because he did anything wrong, but because the only way that you and I can be made right with God is for God to sacrifice himself to cover our sin. 
that he is the Lamb of God, the last sacrifice. That if we believe in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God, Jesus bears for us that you and I deserve. That's what we get for rebelling against God. That's our natural state, rebellion against God. We deserve the wrath of God. We're enemies of the kingdom of God. Yet if we believe in Jesus Christ and we trust in him, then God saves us and he takes our wrath for us and he imputes to us, he credits us his righteousness. So it's not just that we're no longer enemies of God, but God adopts us into his family and now we're co-heirs of the kingdom of God with Jesus. He's our great big brother. That's the gospel. There's benefits to that, right? If we believe in Jesus Christ, then the world is going to shake and everything is going to struggle and life's not always going to be great. But even when it is great and even when it's down and when everything is going away, if we believe in Jesus Christ, then we have a firm anchor. We have a firm foundation that we can cling to in times of need, that we can hope in, that we can trust in, that we can have faith in, that gives us stability in a life and in a world that's often unstable. That's a huge benefit to following after Jesus Christ. But that's not, the gospel is good news. And your biggest enemy is not outside of you. It's our sinful nature. It's our sins within us. That's what the gospel is, that he comes for that. And that's what Paul is saying. I give up my rights. I'll give up whatever right I have to give up if I can proclaim the gospel and it will help those who I am preaching it to hear the gospel better. Because look what he says in verse 19. Although I'm free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those that are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under Christ, the the law of Christ, to, to win those without the law to the weak i became weak in order to win the weak i have become all things to all people so that i might uh, may by every possible means save some now i do this because of the gospel so that i may share in the blessings so paul's saying i i give up these these rights these things that i should hold to so that those who are lost might believe in Jesus, And then if we read this text, and people have read this text this way, but it's not what Paul's saying. Is he's like, so now I just bend over backwards, I sacrifice the gospel so that people can hear about Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying. Right? He's saying to the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. Meaning Paul's not forsaking the gospel just to have other Jews come to church. What he's doing is he's holding the gospel, and he will do whatever Jewish customs he needs to do. We see that he circumcises Timothy in the Bible when he didn't have to be, just so that his gospel proclamation would be more clear to the Jewish people, that there wouldn't be a stumbling block there. It's a freedom that Timothy gives up. He says, I'll become a slave to others if I have to become a slave. I'll be like one under the law if I have to be like one under the law. Or I'll be like one without the law if that will help people be one to Christ. He's not abandoning the gospel. He's taking the gospel and applying it to people in a way that's going to help them grow. To those that are like the Jews or those under the law, there's this legalism that can reign in. There's this pressure from the laws that you cannot keep God's law fully and completely. And so what Paul is saying, he's like, I'm going to preach the gospel, but I'm going to emphasize the freedom that's found in Jesus Christ because that's going to resonate with those people more. 
to those outside of the law that are living that antinomian kind of lifestyle, doing whatever they want and just having whatever they like in life, thinking that there are no laws. Paul's saying, I'll become like that, not because I'm going to go live that way, but because there is freedom in Christ. But the true freedom in Christ is it's a freedom to obey, not a complete freedom to do whatever you want. Just to the weak, I'm going to become like the weak, to win the weak. I'll become all things to all people so that I might, by every possibility, by every means, maybe save some. I think this is a passage that calls us to be reminded of some of the early missionaries of the church. That helps us understand what Paul is talking about. There's a man named Hudson Taylor. Have you ever heard of Hudson Taylor? 1855 is when he goes to China. 1855. Hudson Taylor was one of the first missionaries to go to a foreign country and adopt their cultural lifestyle. He lived amongst the Chinese people. He dressed like the Chinese people. He shaved his head except for a certain spot so that he would have the same haircut as the Chinese people. Not because he thought it was right, but because he thought if I do these things and have these customs and I show these people that I care about them as humans, that they might hear the message of the gospel more clearly. Hudson Taylor learned Chinese and translated the scriptures into Chinese so that the people could read it in their own language. 1855. He shared the gospel. He was trained medically. And so he would dress like the people so that they would come to him for medical advice. And then when they came for like a routine checkup, he was able to share the gospel with them and show them. And we see that there is a huge influence in China from a man named Hudson Taylor who just decided that the what you wear and how you dress and what your haircut is is less important than the gospel message that he would give up those rights willingly and freely if it would help the Chinese people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ better. Again, 1855 is when he did this. There's another man, Adoniram Judson. Everybody heard of Adoniram? He's one of my favorites. He was not a Baptist when he got on his boat to go uh, be a missionary to the Burmese people, but because he read the Bible on the boat, he converted to Baptist theology on the boat. And so he landed, and because of his character, he sent a letter to the Congregationalists and said, I am Baptist, I'm not taking your funds anymore. So he lands in Burmese, gets rid of all of his funding, he meets... Hudson Taylor, and, and Adoniram Judson is the first missionary that Southern Baptists, that Baptists begin to support overseas. He translated the Bible into Burmese. He learned the language of the people. He lived amongst the people. Adoniram took his wife and his kids with him, and his story is tragic. A war breaks out between the Burmese people and England, and because he is white, they imprison him in this terrible prison. They would tie him by his feet up in the air with shackles so that his head would be on the ground, and his wife would have to sneak in his pillow, and she would sew his Bible into his pillow so that he could read the scriptures. All the while, his wife is nursing a newborn infant, and they've adopted multiple Burmese kids because their parents had been killed. His wife literally works herself to death. She dies when he gets out of prison. Multiple of his kids die while he's on the mission field. He's married three different times. Each of his first two wives die on the mission field. 
He had bouts of depression. In fact, he got so depressed one time that he moved off into the forest and the locals, the Burmese people, were worried about him because he built a shack in the forest and there's tigers in Burma. They thought he would be eaten. In fact, he was so depressed he dug his own grave and he would sit over it and sulk and mourn. But he comes out of all of this and because they cared about him, because their relationship, he's able to share the gospel with the Burmese people. When his first convert to Christ comes around, it's 15 years after he landed there. What Adoniram Judson showed us, what he learned was he could preach the gospel to these people, but if a Burmese believer would preach the gospel, they would hear it better. So he began focusing on discipling believers of Burma and teaching them how to share the gospel with their own people. One of the Baptist's favorite missionaries is a a little old lady named Lottie Moon. We do the Christmas offering for her, but far often we just think she's this Christmas offering lady. But Lottie Moon was a short woman and a spitfire. 39 years she lived single as a missionary in China. She was engaged at one point, and her and her fiancé got into an argument over if she should go be a missionary or not. She chose to go be a missionary over her marriage and broke off the engagement. Lottie Moon lived in China. She taught girls school. She starts a school so that all these young Chinese girls would show up at the school and she began sharing the gospel with them and evangelizing. She would go evangelize the women and the girls around the town because the men wouldn't look at her or listen. She was feared and she was rejected by the locals, which makes me laugh because she's just this short little spitfire of a woman and I'm kind of scared of those people too. This is how we know Lottie Moon's truly Baptist. This is my favorite story ever. To get people to come to her house to hear about Jesus, she would open her windows and she would bake cookies. They would smell the cookies and they would come try a bite. She dressed like the Chinese people. And in fact, she would write letters to the Baptist churches back in the States. And the letters were always revolving around two different things. It was either send missionaries or give funds so that we can send missionaries. Her whole life, essentially 39 years, she went to China in 1873 was lived giving up these freedoms that she could have had. She could have been married. She could have lived in the state. She could have likely had a family and lived what would be the proverbial American dream, but instead she gave it up and went overseas to go be a missionary to these Chinese people. No husband. I think she was like 5'1". I mean, she was a short woman. Gave up those freedoms, gave up those rights. She became like the Chinese to win the Chinese to Christ. That's what Paul is saying. The Jews, I become like a Jew. To the, those under the law, I become like one under the law. To those not under the law, I become one like not. He's not giving up the gospel. He's not telling us to, to get rid of the gospel and then try to backdoor, sneak it in later if they want to be these things. He's saying you hold to the gospel, you hold it central, you hold it firm, but you rearrange the rest of your life to make it known that you want these people, that you love them, that you care for them, and that your love for them is going to compel you to share the gospel with them so that they might be saved. 
We talk about this in the, the membership class, that, that when we do these things, we have to be careful. There's, there's kind of three tiers of issues when it comes to Christianity. We have first-tier issues, that if we disagree on first-tier issues, these are primary doctrines of the church. You're not a Christian if we don't agree on these first-tier issues. There are things like, if you don't think Jesus is God in the flesh, that's not a fight between believers, that's a fight between unbelievers and believers. We don't sacrifice those things when we're trying to contextualize the gospel to our people. Second tier issues are going to be things that are important, but that brothers and sisters in Christ can disagree upon. A lot of times, second tier issues are where we're going to go to different churches. We can fellowship with one another, we can love one another, we can care for one another, but it's going to be hard to worship together if we disagree on these issues. These are going to be things like the uh, gifts of the Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit. If you are a continuationist and a cessationist, you come together in the church, those things are going to rub and not typically work out. If you're an egalitarian and in a complementarian church, those things are not typically going to work out if we're holding to those things. We can be brothers and sisters and disagree. Now, we do need to clarify this with second-tier issues. There are some second-tier issues that are worth fighting for. If the reason we have those second-tier issues is not because of the biblical authority that we think we come to. Right, so egalitarianism and, and, and um, complementarianism, that's, that's the role of, of women in the church is what we fight for. And there are some people who believe that women can be pastors, that God has given them those things, and they'll give you some biblical arguments that are sound. I do not agree. But we're not going to say that they're unbelievers. That it's not a first-tier issue, unless what they say is we believe women can be pastors of those things because the Bible is outdated and antiquated and we have to adapt it. Then it's not really an argument about that. It's about the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture. And that's an argument on a first-tier level, not a second-tier. And then there's third-tier issues. These are issues like the color of the carpet. These are issues like what is the best casserole at men's breakfast? <laughs> We may disagree on these things. We should never be upset over them. What Paul is telling us here when he's saying we contextualize these things is he's dealing with third-tier issues. That you can dress, if you're a missionary in China, like the people who live in China. You don't have to wear a three-piece suit and a tie. That's not going to connect with them very well with the gospel. They're going to be so distracted by the noose that you have around your neck that they're not going to hear the message that you're proclaiming. That's what I like to call ties. That you preach the gospel. That never changes. But how we preach it. How we live our lives in the gospel matters. This is why it's important for us to recognize. We're going to go do mission trips at other places. We're going to take trips and go share the gospel with people outside of us. But our primary mission field that God has given us is right here. We are the best people to share the gospel with our neighbors. We are the best people. We understand the culture. We understand that Hermley is a subpar school compared to Ivor, where somebody outside of Scurry County is not going to understand that. Sorry, Ruby. <laughs> We're going to understand those things. We're going to understand that Snyder has a Whataburger, but it is the lowest tier Whataburger in all of the Whataburger chains. 
or somebody outside of our group, geographically away from us, isn't going to understand that thing. That God has placed you here for a purpose and for a reason. That God has given you the neighbors you have for a purpose and for a reason. He has given you the co-workers you work next to for a purpose and for a reason. That he has placed you with your sphere of influence where you are at for a purpose and for a reason. It's not an accident. That it's God in his sovereignty saying, go share the gospel with these people. Live amongst them. Show them that there's a better way. Because look what Paul says in verse 24. Don't all the runners know? Uh, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race? But only one receives the prize. <coughs> Run in such a way to win the prize. <coughs> now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything they do it to receive a perishable crown but we an imperishable crown so i do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air instead i discipline my body i bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others i myself will not be disqualified What we see Paul saying is he's talking about this cultural issue that's going to take place in Corinth. There were two sporting events that would take place in Corinth every other year. You will know one of them, the Olympic Games. The other one was the Ithmian Games. Paul's talking about the Ithmian Games here because he mentions the fading crown. They would give crowns made of basically lawn clippings. They would put them on your head. They would be uh, leaves and brush and things that they would weave together. To be part of the Ithmian Games, you would have to be selected. It wasn't just an anybody can show up and go race like it's the 4th of July frog hop. You would have to apply. You would have to prove yourself worthy. You would show up two months beforehand, and you would enter into an intense amount of training for these games. Your whole life would revolve around this race. After a month, they would cut down the field. So that when the games got here, you ended up with athletes who had been exercising self-control every single day. That they had been disciplined in their body, that they had worked out, ready for this race that's about to take place. And so Paul's saying, look at those guys. See how hard they're training. See how long they're working. See how their whole life revolves around this one race. But what are they doing it for? They're doing it for a crown that's going to perish. A crown that's going to dissolve. A crown that by the time it gets to their grandkids, their grandkids aren't going to know what it is, so it'll just be a little tiara as the daughters are playing in the dirt. It's really worthless. But then Paul flips it and he says, but you and I are in a race where we race for a crown that's not perishable. Now it's kind of a hard illustration and analogy for us to understand because Paul's saying you run the race to win. So if you and I are all in one race, but there's only one winner, the analogy doesn't quite kind of work. That's not what Paul's saying is he's saying there's one race that you individually are a part of. 
And when you race, you don't race to lose. You race to win. You, you compete to win. You fight to win. If you're going to spend months and months training for this race, if you're going to be disciplined in your body, if you're going to exercise self-control for the months that you're doing these things, then you're not going to show up at the race and go, well, I really hope to get third place today. You're going to run hard. You're going to fight hard. You're going to try to win this race. That's what Paul is saying. That you do all of these things to win, to get to the end, to survive the race. You're not running as somebody who's aimlessly running around. You're not boxing like you're beating in the air, like there's no enemies there. That there's a purpose to the struggle. There's a purpose to your life. That there's something important and valuable worth running for, worth living your life for. And it's this imperishable crown, this glory of God, being in his presence, being saved and being with God for an eternity. And I like how Paul ends it so that after preaching to others. He makes sure that he is striving after the gospel, too. Because he doesn't want to be disqualified. See, I look at this passage and I look at this thing and, and I recognize there's so many important points for us to focus on. But I think the one that stands out to us this morning is this idea that God has placed you and I and Ira for a purpose and for a reason. Charles Spurgeon has a quote. He says this. If sinners be condemned. That's not the word he uses. He uses a curse word. (laughs) If sinners be condemned. At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish. Let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees. Imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled. Let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. There's a, this is going to sound odd after Spurgeon, a magician named Penn Teller. Penn Teller is an ardent atheist, cannot stand God. But Penn Teller has said this. I've always said that I don't respect people who do not proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not going to eternal life and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it sociably awkward and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that there was a truck coming at you and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you there is a certain point where i tackle you because that is more important than this meaning that is more important than a socially awkward conversation that's the call of paul is that if you and I are believers in Jesus Christ, if we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, if we hold to that wholeheartedly, and we believe that gospel truth to be absolutely, completely, 100% certainty and true, if we believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible and authoritative and enough that it is sufficient for us, then our response is never to just sit there and do nothing with our salvation. 
We're not saved by our works, but it compels us to go out into the world that God has not called you home yet. When you die is when God calls you home. And until that point, you are a missionary in Ira or wherever you live for the glory of God. So take the gospel truth, not just the benefits, not just the drawback. Take the gospel truth of Jesus Christ and go share it with your neighbors and live in such a way that they say you follow this message that you proclaim. That Jesus Christ really is enough for you. Because what you will see happen, what tends to happen, is people who reject the gospel, who don't hear it the first time, who, who I preached at D now this week, and we talked about the parable of the sowers, people who have, have hearts that are hardened like the path where the seed is sown, or people who have hearts that have the rock that, that the initially sprouts out, there's an initial idea of they look like they're saved, and they joyfully receive the gospel, but when times get hard, they, they wither away and they die, or people whose hearts are like the thorns where it's planted up, but the pleasures of life also grow with it, so they try to hold to Jesus and the world, and it ends up being choked out by the world, that those kinds of people at some point in time will go through a hard time god will send them through it you can almost guarantee it and that your job if you're a believer is to point them to jesus in the midst of it ira people are hard-headed that's why we came (laughs) i fit in pretty well and god is using you he's using me in our culture to soften people's hearts to the word of God. To help them see the truth that their hard work is great and it's noble, but it's not enough to save them. That Jesus is a God who saves, but he's also Lord and he has standards and he has ideals and he has these laws that we follow after and we obey because he saved us from the world. He saved us from ourselves. That we become all things to all people. So that maybe God will use you, maybe God will use me to save some. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you that we can gather together, that we can see baptisms this morning, God, and see just a symbol of some, some little peace, God, that you're still working in Ira, that you still have your gospel going out, that your word is still spreading, and that when your word goes out, that life begins, that life happens. God, I thank you that we can come to a text like this to remind us, Father, 